The elephant today is about assurance. You know that, that moment when you're sitting there and wait for your, your name or your zone to be called to get onto the plane? You know that moment? And you're the last one. Uh, they're, they're monetizing everything, including you know, just breathing, right? Did you want to breathe on this flight? Because that's another $30 if you'd like to have some oxygen. Uh, you know, the, the, the hierarchy of this entry onto the plane, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, they're going to start to play trumpets for the, the, the most important person going on the plane, the first person who gets on. They're going to start to play these trumpets. Like, everyone stand now because uh, the most important person in the front of the plane is about to get onto the plane. You know, what's worse, than, though, than being, you know, sometimes when I'm seated at the very back, I'll, I'll, I'll catch the eye of one of the flight attendants, and I'll say, I'm being punished, aren't I, right? <laughs> they get it, you know, they understand. But what's worse than that is being on standby, right? And if you're sitting in that, that waiting area, waiting for your zone to be called, you know who's on standby, don't you, right? Everybody knows who's on standby. Because those are the people looking at their watch, right? They're just constantly looking at their watch. They're shuffling around. They're looking at the screen. They're going up and, and, uh, to the counter and, and checking in. You know, they, 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 they kind of make themselves known. They stand out in front of everybody, and they're just waiting. There's a total ease uh, and peace, though, that even if you're going to be called last, zone F, zone Z, zone QA1 or whatever it is that you are, you're still, you know you have a seat. You're at ease and at peace. If you're on standby, you don't know. There is a, an image for you that shows, I think, a great difference between having assurance of your faith and not having assurance of your faith. It comes up pretty frequently. How do we know? How do we know that our faith is saving faith? And so often we want to have uh, certainty and certain kinds of markers that tell us, yep, that's it. That's the deal. Boom. Your lever is pulled and all the rest of it. So let's ask the question this morning as we look at one of these mysterious and powerful and vivid passages from the Old Testament where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son, Isaac, Asking ourselves, how do we know we have saving faith? From the Word of God, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. <laughs> okay, you know, we get used to reading these things, and uh, yeah, that's pretty intense. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to a place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I hope you're noticing things. 
Are you noticing things? On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I can't, in 25 minutes, I can't, I can't call everything out, but I hope you read recognizing that there are so many ties to the New Testament. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, and the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn... By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall be the nations of the earth. Be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. Let's pray together. God bless this word not only to our minds to understand it in all of its wonder, but to our hearts that we may believe it and through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we have assurance of faith? Well, it's location, location, location the location of your trust, the location of your obedience, and the location of the evidence of faith. So we're going to run right through this. The location, location, location. Where do you locate your trust, your faith? Where's the location of it? A couple weeks ago, we talked about the object of your faith. And I talked about uh, trusting in an umbrella to jump off of the high platform of a jungle gym, not a good idea, right? And I talked about my friend who slid down the pole. His, the location of his trust was in the pole, right? That was a wise choice. You see, what you have your faith in, the object of your faith, the location of your faith matters. Well, how is it that Jesus is sufficient to save us? So why is the location of, of Jesus in particular 
Why does that save us? So that's, that's the assurance we need, right? We, we need to have the assurance that, that the object of our faith is sufficient to save, right? We need to know that Jesus can actually save and why that is. That should bring assurance. And the best story I've ever heard that illustrates and captures what justification means and looks like, what it means to be justified by faith, is this incredible, incredible story. I, I told it many years ago here, but I've seen since then many different iterations of this same story. And I don't know if, where this story comes from, uh, whether it's a Native American story or whether it's uh, a Russian story. But the way I heard it was, first heard it, was this Russian uh, dissident and leader of a, of a pack of people who moved out into this outer wasteland and set up camp. It was a time of the Russian czars and a lot of oppression. And, and he decided, well, we're going to have our own society sort of in a remote area. And they had to, the, the rule of law, the martial law, was, was crucial because they had grain and storehouses and they needed to make it through the winter and so they were rationing their food. And it, was soon, it soon came to light that some of the, the, the rations were being depleted faster than, uh, than they had been giving out and so obviously somebody had been stealing grain. And so he laid down the law. This, this leader, he said, I'm laying down the law, here's the law. That if you're, if, you, if you're caught stealing grain, you're going to be uh, publicly flogged 40 times. Now, this, this leader was a robust guy. He was a burly man. He was also a great leader. He knew that he was probably the only one who could be lashed 40 times and survive. Well, in a few weeks, it came to light that it was a member of his own family that had been taking grain at night. It was his mother. His mother thought that there were certain families who weren't getting enough, and she took it upon herself to, uh, to, to take extra grain and out of her own sense of compassion to give uh, extra grain to certain families she thought needed more. And so here he was caught between uh, the law and his love. And everybody wondered, where was he going to err? Was he going to err on the side of love or err on the side of law? Was he going to sacrifice the law for the love of his mother? Or was he going to sacrifice love for the law that he had laid down? And so he, he, he called everyone together into the central square and, and, uh, and said that, that there would be justice. Uh, and, and so he had her bound. And then uh, at the very last minute, as the person who would be laying down the lashes of that whip on her back, the very last minute, he stepped in and wrapped his arms around her and said, proceed. And so here is an image of law and love, of grace and mercy, of Jesus standing between the consequences of our disobedience and the punishment for it. The wages of sin are death, Romans says. And so when you look at this story and you recognize that there is a trust 
located in God, you can begin to see how a man would do something so unspeakably horrid as to proceed with the procedure of doing what he was asked to do and yet trusting that God would provide when he didn't know or see. You see, faith isn't, faith isn't seeing all the way down the misty road. It's trusting God enough to take the next step. It's to shift your weight onto something other than your own sensibilities. You see, verse 13 says this. He says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. In Romans chapter 4, it said, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And what does that mean? Reckoned to him. It means it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. So in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, so, such as uh, sacrificing this ram, was like buying something on credit, right? On credit. You know that there is a, an account somewhere else that's going to fulfill that. Uh, but after Jesus' crucifixion, it's kind of like uh, buying it on debit. It, 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 it's, it's been fulfilled. It, as soon as you uh, make that transaction, it's done. And so here is Abraham trusting that God is going to provide. Why? Because, because in Genesis chapter 12, God cuts a covenant with Abraham. He cuts a covenant. It takes what he would have uh, sacrificed, all the animals he would have sacrificed during that week for their food, uh, and, and, and cuts this covenant and walks with, but, but instead of walking between them, God is the one who goes between them as a smoking pot, as a, an image of a smoking pot passes between these pieces. And so in that, uh, in that era, it, it, cutting a covenant or, or signing a treaty, people would say, um, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? It's kind of like that. It's like uh, we will both pass between these pieces, and, and, and if any of us, either of us breaks the covenant, then whoever breaks that covenant, may they be like these sacrificed animals. But in Genesis chapter 12, God alone passes between the pieces. And so when Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, you know He's already recognized that God will provide. God will provide. He says it to Isaac. God will himself provide it. He had to believe that somehow God would make it right, even when it was going so wrong. You see, the assurance of faith is that God has already done it. Already done it. Not that he will do it someday. Not that you will have nice big piece of pie in the sky by and by. But that he has done something effective to save you. And when you have Christ as the object of your faith, when you locate your faith in Christ, because you see that his sacrifice was sufficient, his grace and mercy came together on the cross, when you truly trust there, you cannot trust without assurance accompanying it. It's part of the package. It's part of the deal. 
you see a man totally at ease, a man completely trusting God. Assurance of faith comes because of the location of his faith. Second, assurance of faith comes not only from the location of faith, but the location of your motive. Why are you believing? Why are you believing? Why do you believe that that God's uh, sacrifice for you was sufficient? Why do you believe that? Why do you obey? Why do you respond in obedience? Well, because if you truly believe that God has done it 100%, that you didn't need a little bit of help, you didn't need a lot of help, he did it. It's not like we're, you know, you know, God did a lot. He did a lot for us. You know, I do a little. He did a lot, right? You see, if you see yourself as kind of a little sinner, you'll see Jesus as a little Savior. But if you see yourself as completely in need, utterly in need, you'll see the sacrifice is sufficient. And when you recognize, and here's the, the second point, when you recognize that it's been done, your response, the, what drives your response is no longer guilt, but awe, fear. Not fear like, oh my goodness, I'm worried about the consequences. Fear as in awe and respect for the one who's already done it. The motive is no longer I have to do things to add to myself. No, it's no longer I'll do these things and I'll be accepted. It's he has accepted me. And now, out of a sense of respect and awe, you see, you, your motive really does matter in terms of having a full sense of assurance of faith. When you're being obedient in order to, to avoid punishment... You haven't really owned it. There's no relationship. You're just simply doing something to achieve a goal. But if the goal's already been achieved, then you have been freed by grace to have a relationship with God that is responsive, that's sincere, that's genuine. There's no relationship apart from trust. In other words, what God has done for us in advance allows us to have a relationship because otherwise we're abating not out of trust, not out of a sense of faith, not out of anything else, but in order to earn something. How do you feel when somebody's just kind of doing something for you in order to get something from you? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that person? You know, they're using you to, get, to just get some end, to achieve some end. There's no relationship there. Yeah, see, this is the problem that I see. Today, people are searching for a verdict over their life. And the anxiety that we have, maybe, maybe as I've said in the past, you know, our screens contribute to it a little bit. But the anxiety that I see on the rise, especially in future generations, is that people don't have a sense of verdict over their lives. There's no word spoken over their lives that gives them a verdict. What am I talking about? Well, let me, let me, give you, let me read to you part of this play uh, from, by Arthur Miller called After the Fall. And here's the lead character, Quentin, who is, who is saying, you know, that he had, had looked at his life and he had looked at sort of the merit that he'd tried to, uh, to, to, to garner through all of his achievements 
And he assumed that at some point he would feel some assurance and peace. That somehow there would be some kind of either in the turning of the tassel and some kind of affirmation that somebody would say over his life, you're okay, you're all right. He says this, you know, more and more I think about it for many years, I looked at life as a series of proofs. He says, now I see that was a presumption. I thought I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned. Then he says this, a verdict anyway, whether it's positive or negative. Give me the answer. That's what he's saying. I think now that my disaster was really began when I looked up one day and I saw the bench was empty. No judge in sight. I think we're dealing with it, a culture that is increasingly looking for a verdict. But when you have faith in Christ, the verdict has already been pronounced. You know what it is? It's not innocent. It's not guilty. It's forgiven. That's the verdict, forgiven. And so when, when God looks at you, he sees Christ, not just wrapped around you to, to, to take the punishment, but he sees transferred to you all of what Jesus earned, all of what Jesus earned. You see, what Abraham is doing here is not just, he's not proving to God his love for God. But I think what's happening is that, that God puts Abraham to the test so that Abraham can experience his own faith. The faith he put into him, into God in Genesis chapter 12. He needed to experience his own faith. He needed to participate in it so that he would have the sense of peace because that's what God wants for you. See, I've wrestled with this sermon this week because I don't want to, uh, for those who need more assurance and, and to move further with Christ, I don't want to raise doubts about your faith because what God wants for us in working out our faith is an increasing confidence that he's already taken care of it. I'm time conscious this morning, so I'm gonna kind of cut the last part of this. And so what I want to leave you with is this, this challenge. One of, uh, one of my heroes is John Perkins. I've got a lot of heroes. Do you, have, do, you have some, do you have some heroes? you have people in your life that you look at and you say, you know, they're not perfect, but, man, I love what that person's doing. And John Perkins is, was one of um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s friends. And John Perkins is one great hero of the faith. African-American pastor, uh, great thought leader. And one of the things I've learned from John Perkins in reading his books and listening to some of the things that he says is that people, this is my own words, that people are looking for a verdict over their life and sometimes their service to others is in order to get that verdict. And you know, if we're, if we're serving our community if we're reaching out across cultural lines or socioeconomic lines, if we're reaching out to the Guanabacoa church in order to feel better about ourselves, then we're not going to help people. We're going to hurt them. We're going to hurt them. 
What's so crucial about loving God and loving others and Jesus saying that these two things are, are, are like each other is that when we love God and we understand that that's a response to what he's already completed for us in Christ, then we can love others without trying to earn anything through doing it. And we will love them well. The whole welfare system, I think, disabled an entire class of people. Black and white, people who can't make ends meet. The safety net that we need as a society out of compassion for people who cannot do for themselves, we have been using it in order to feel better about having more than other people. And you know what? That's bad for them. That's an example. You say, well, that sounds kind of political. It sounds like you're coming down. Well, you know, somewhere our faith and the things that we believe, the principles that help us uh, function well, do come down into politics. They're expressed in every layer of life. And so we have to understand how is it that working out our faith, that, that, that grace that saves us, actually enables us to reach out to people who are in need in a way that actually elevates them rather than keeping them down, that actually, that actually brings up the sense of dignity that they have rather than perpetuating their dependence. And so First Presbyterian Church, we need to understand we've got all these wonderful partnerships. We need to engage relationally. Not just to give things away and trust that somebody else is doing it right. We need to go to Guanabacoa and engage. We need to go across town. We need to be alongside neighbors that have little. And we need to administer to them the things that they need in the way that they need it. That is to say, to elevate their dignity, that they're a child creating the image and nature of God, that we see it and we don't want them to suffer. But to do so in a way that allows them to be responsive to God, even as we have. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the ways that your sacrifice for us and the, the love that you've shown for us, but what you've done for us has not diminished us, but elevated us. How amazing is your grace. And Lord, we would want to walk in your ways. We want to serve and be on mission in such a way that the trust and assurance that we've experienced through faith and even the ways we are obeying your law through serving others brings grace to bear upon other people's lives. Just as we need it, they need it. Help us and guide us not to put people down in the, in the wake of our good deeds, but to step in the gap in the way that you've stepped into the gap for us, that people can see and attribute not what we've done, but by grace what we've received and passed on. In Jesus' name, amen.